Did Jesus really teach his disciples to pray for a new exodus? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kemnitty and Glenn Powell. In our last episode, we briefly explored what happens when we read the Lord's Prayer in its original context. A typical practice of first century rabbis was to teach their disciples a prayer that would express their own distinctive practices and agenda. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus's prayer does exactly this. Early on in the Bible's story, Israel's exodus from Egypt formed kind of a prototype or a pattern of how God saves his people. So now in the crucial time of his last days, Jesus is taking on the deeper, more significant enemy of God's people the enslaving power of sin and death, and bringing about a new exodus, a new time of rescue and restoration. Right. Last time, of course, we looked at briefly at the context in the Gospel of Luke of where the prayer actually shows up. And we saw that essentially Jesus is saying, look, if you are my disciple and you're willing to pray this prayer, then you're basically signing up to join my new exodus movement. You are willing to tell the Father that now is the time, and Jesus the Messiah is the agent, the new Moses, if you will, that can deliver this deeper freedom. Exodus prayers are prayers of distress, prayers from suffering people, prayers that plead with God to come down and to do something, something new and powerful and redemptive. And just to remind you of the, the wording of this prayer that we're going to be working with. Um, we're using Luke's shorter version of the prayer of liberation. Also, we're trying to free the prayer from the traditional English wording, which tends to diminish or gloss over this new Exodus meaning. So our stronger, refreshed rendering goes like this. Father, make your name holy. Bring your kingdom. Give us today our daily bread, or as we're going to talk about next time, maybe even meaning the bread of tomorrow, but we'll talk about that later. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. Don't bring us to the time of trial. Yeah, Glenn, this has been a fascinating series, and again, we're going to wrap it up next week. But thank you for bringing this to our attention. We were talking before we turned on the microphone that, uh, you know, we're not newbies to the church or to the, the Christian faith and have prayed this prayer in, in our congregations hundreds and hundreds of times. But quite honestly, this concept that the Lord's Prayer is a new Exodus prayer is not something that's been in my imagination. And I think for a lot of us, and a lot of our listeners, um, that's the case. But it is there, and uh, it it there, there are some pretty big breadcrumbs along the way that that point <laughs> to this this path. So yeah. as we talked about last week, you know, the setting of this um, this this isn't just kind of you know floating in the ether. This comes right towards the time when Jesus is on his final trek to Jerusalem. And before he gets there, he goes up onto, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration. There's the cameo appearance with um, 
Moses and Elijah. Jesus has his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And what did they talk about when they were up there? And it says this specifically in the text. Jesus talked to them about his exodus, which would come to fulfillment in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, and we think that probably the disciples began to pick up on this, that just like Moses faced down Pharaoh, Jesus is on his way to face down the religious leaders and to face down the bigger enemies of sin and death, which, as we've said before, when you boil it all down, you know, what is it that prevents human flourishing? What is it that squashes the Imago Dei? It is, it is a sin and death. And so there's, there's some urgency, I think we said last week, to this prayer. And, you know, as, as we think about it in its context, the world at this moment is in a very dark place. God has disappeared for like 400 years. He hasn't given Israel new leaders. He doesn't send them new victories over their enemies as he has done in the past. And in the vacuum, Rome has stepped in and they have a stranglehold on the world. And they are infamous for sin and death. They're infamous for their debauchery um, Rome is kind of a death machine, the Colosseum, death is entertainment. And so at this point, Jesus is saying to his disciples, recognize that the world is a very dark place right now, and this darkness is closing in on us. There's no time for wimpy prayers. There's no time for flowery prayers. This is an urgent prayer. Father, and it's in the imperative form, make your name holy and bring bring your kingdom. And we're going to look at those first two petitions in depth. Yeah, and just to add one, one quick thing to that, Paul, I think um, it's really strong. And what Jesus is doing is saying, look, and this was a hard thing for the disciples and everyone to figure out, that he's actually, he's not going to fight Rome. He, he's actually going for the deeper powers. And we talked about this on this podcast when we did our series, I'm um, talking about the powers that um, Jesus is identifying the deeper enemy. So that's why it's such a powerful prayer, and it's a new Exodus prayer, because Jesus is identifying a different enslaving power, and it's not even just the earthly kingdoms, which are enslaving powers, but they themselves are getting their strength from these deeper spiritual powers, and that's the Pharaoh, if you will, that Jesus is going to go after. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that, Glenn. But Rome is, it, it, to your point, it is, it is the visceral and the visual picture of what sin and death looks like. Absolutely. Yeah, these, for sure. When these darker powers takes over, it looks like Rome, which, you know, the whole Pax yep. Romana is, you know, is an illusion. Rome is, is in the driver's seat because they, they bring death and destruction everywhere. All right, well, let's go ahead and dive into the prayer itself and begin unpacking how it's a new Exodus prayer. And basically, the overall structure is that it starts with the address to God, which is just in this version, simply saying Father. Then it's followed by two imperatives that are directly about God himself. Make your name holy and bring your kingdom. After that, there's two imperatives which tell God to do something for us, which is give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. And then finally, there's kind of this negative imperative, don't bring us to the time of trial. 
So today we're going to be looking at the opening address of the prayer, as well as the first two petitions about God. And then in our next episode, we'll be looking at the following two petitions about us, and then the final negative one. Okay, so we start with this address. Jesus tells his disciples to begin by simply calling God Father. The key passage on this point is Exodus 4, key first Exodus passage, when God is preparing Moses to face Pharaoh. So this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. All right, so we're used to referring to God as Father, but we have to understand that in the story of the Bible, this is a new revelation in the time of the Exodus. Before this, God has never referred to himself as Israel's father. He was Elohim, which is God, or El Elyon, God Most High. El Shaddai, God Almighty, or just Adonai, which means Lord or Master, but not Father. So the Exodus opens up a new way for God's people to think about him. He is their Father, and he cares for them like a son. So from this point on, in the story of the Bible, to refer to Yahweh or God as Father is to reference the God of the Exodus the God who cares for Israel like his own son, the God who comes down to set his son free. Yeah, that's, that's good, Glenn. And the point that we're, we're stressing here is that in the first century, when the disciples hear Jesus' description, when they hear, here's my rabbinic prayer for you, and he begins with this address of Father, that the, the disciples would, would originally think back to the Exodus where this whole concept of father began to, you know, seep into their collective consciousness about the name of God and who God was. And so, you know, this, this is referred to then not just in the Exodus story, but right towards the end of, you know, Moses's um, work and in, in life with the people. And he's sharing his swan song in in Deuteronomy, his final talk. And he says to them, and you saw how the Lord your God carried you all along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father, you know, cares for his child, kind of a picture of a father who's uh, hoisted a tired child onto uh, onto his back. And so again, this is unique language for God. And it takes a while for the the nation to begin to absorb it, but it begins, Glenn, to your point, in the context of the uh, the Exodus story, and then later on, you know, the prophets refer to God as Israel's father um, when they bring up the Exodus. Hosea says, "When Israel was my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." So there's this new element of tenderness of a father who steps into the fray to rescue his children. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think this is why, 
again, just to make a Bible reading point, um, when you understand that it was the father idea of God that was revealed in the Exodus, um, then you make connections with that when the word father for God comes up later. So basically, in short, it was the Exodus that established that God was more than a deity, more than Israel's great king. God was Israel's father. So when Jesus opens the prayer with the title Father, it sends a very clear signal to his disciples that Jesus wants them to pray specifically to the God of Israel's great liberation event, the Exodus. The very first word of the prayer already puts us firmly on new Exodus ground. Kind of like Jesus is saying this, Father, God of the Exodus, do you still love your children? If you do, it's time for you to come down and set them free again, to set them free once and for all. That's what Jesus is communicating in this, even just the very opening of this prayer. And you know what? I'm no expert in kind of ancient Near Eastern deism or anything like that. But uh, to my knowledge, this this father-child relationship between Israel's deity and the nation seems, uh, if not totally unique, then at least very rare, mm. I would say. Yeah. You know, most, I, I think, from what I know about uh, you know, ancient pagan nations and that sort of thing. It was, it was kind of, uh, deity as overlord and your main job is <laughs> their subject was to not make them angry. Right. right. Like, and, and so kind of introducing this father child language and this rescue language is, um, powerful, I think, especially in that context. Yeah. And what, you know, what the things that Paul just read, like there's a tenderness to this. And I think that's that's a new thing, right? It's one thing to have God as God in heaven, powerful, almighty, all of that. But it's the tenderness that the Bible passages that that talk about God as Father, that's what you see. I, I saved my son from Egypt. I carried him tenderly. Um, those are the kind of words you read when you read about God as Father. So the New Exodus thing is also, you know, a family kind of thing. It's about God as caring for us like his children. And um, the Exodus language is very bold, but it's still tender and loving because that's who our father is. Yeah, it's a great way to start the prayer. So uh, let's go ahead and move on to the first two petitions, which are directly about God himself. And we'll take them one at a time. So first we have make your name holy which for me, honestly, is a little bit strange. Like, isn't God's name already holy? Isn't it always holy? Like, how, how can God make it holy? And the issue here and in the Exodus isn't necessarily the inherent status of God's name, but whether anyone actually knows that it's holy. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing, Alex, that takes us back to the first Exodus story, where in that particular time frame, Israel's one true God is barely known. I mean, he's, he's not known locally. Yeah. He's certainly not known, you know, internationally. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, there's this significant point where the name of God and what that name represents, you know, moves to the forefront of the story. We remember how it begins Moses is, you know, out in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep. He sees this burning bush, 
And, you know, he asks God, you know, what is your name? Like, I can't represent you unless I know who you are. And so, and he says, so, you know, what am I going to say to the Israelites? And God answers and says, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. And then he adds, this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so Moses takes that name and he goes to see Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh responds, "Um, what, you know, uh, probably snarkily, who's Yahweh that I should Mm -hmm. obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. Um, from a hole in the wall. It, it doesn't say that in the text, but you know, I will not let Israel go. <laughs> and obviously to Pharaoh, there's nothing special about Yahweh. Uh, who is he? What has he done? Why should I honor him and, and, uh, and listen to him? And so if we take this back to the, the first Exodus, this idea of make your name known it resides in that story, and it resides in mm-hmm. God first making himself known to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, which we know indeed happens. Yeah, that's exactly it. So God's name might be holy, but the Lord's Prayer is not about you know declarations of what is. It's about new action. So Pharaoh doesn't know that God's name is holy. The nations don't know that God's name is holy. You could even ask, does Israel even know that God's name is holy? The fact is, God in the Exodus story has to do something to make his name holy. That is, he has to definitively and publicly demonstrate that his name is holy. The point of the plagues on Egypt is for Pharaoh who says he doesn't know Yahweh and isn't going to listen to him, now Pharaoh is going to learn who Yahweh really is. Yeah, so, so the exodus happens, and, uh, and then you next see this theme pop up a little bit when, uh, when God is giving Israel the Torah, and he says to them, Keep my commands and follow them. I am Yahweh. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am Yahweh who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. So God has first revealed his father in this story, and now his name Yahweh is shown to be holy through the acts of the Exodus. So he rescues his people and demonstrates in action that he is Israel's father and he makes his name holy before Israel and before Egypt. So going back to the Lord's Prayer, how does this reflect what Jesus is telling his disciples to pray for? Yeah, that's that's good, Alex. And and actually, um, the answer to that question, there's some some kind of hints and clues of that in in some of the prophets' messages. So, for example, um, Ezekiel begins to paint a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. And he begins a new exodus. And so this is, this is what Ezekiel says. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Yahweh Almighty, when I am proven holy through you before your eyes. So this first line of the prayer, you know, make your name holy, is is really, first of all, an, an admission and kind of a coming home, you know, to Jesus moment, if you will, that everything that has gone before has been something of a failure. So Israel was given a job, which was to be a light to the nations. In other words, it was their job to make God's name known, and they stunk it up. And mm-hmm. so that's what he said. You you profaned my name. You yeah. you were supposed to be the nation that was going to help people see this is who God is. This is who the Father is. This is the God who wants to rescue you all along the way. But you you profaned the name. And then he goes on um, in that in that same prayer or in that same prophecy, and he says. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into my own land. Notice here the use of I will, I will, I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you uh, or remove from your heart, uh, you know, the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will pour my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And what Ezekiel seems to be saying is that when the new exodus comes, that, that, that God himself, that Jesus is going to be the primary actor that Jesus is not going to depend on others to make his name holy, but he will make his own name holy. He's kind of taking the project over. So it's not, not again, far removed from what we saw in the first, um, the first Exodus. This isn't Moses that's manipulating things. It's God himself who is enacting, mm, you know, the, yeah, ten, right. the, the 10 plagues. Moses Moses is the spokesperson and kind of the moderator in all of it. But in the same way, um, at the end of the day, this is a God project. And that's what we're asking for when we pray that God get this product, you know, ramp it up, make it happen and make it happen now. Take over, make your name public. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the imperatives in the Lord's Prayer are exactly tied to those all those I will statements. So I think basically Jesus is looking at that that uh, Ezekiel prophecy and saying, okay, God, you said I will, I will, I will do all these things. Now is the time. So do it. Like, that's why the prayer is in the imperative, because we're telling God to do what he said he would do in the new Exodus. So, um, this is starting to kind of, I think, all fit together. So let's go to the next one. The next line in the prayer, um, closely tied to making his name holy, is bring your kingdom. So it's almost as if Jesus is inviting his disciples to challenge God. Like, okay, God, you rule in heaven. Great. Do you also rule on earth? Because here where we live, 
It looks for all the world like Caesar rules. Or back in the first Exodus, like Pharaoh rules. So Jesus is telling the disciples to ask God, do you love us? Do you see what's happening to us? What about the promises you made to Abraham? Are you able to keep them? Exodus prayers are about bringing God's saving, renewing authority to earth. They are about the rule of God showing up in the place where the trouble is, in the places where God's people are suffering, in the places where injustice is happening. So a new Exodus prayer, just like a first Exodus prayer, says, bring your kingdom, which in, we're not using Matthew's version, but Matthew adds the explanatory second line, uh, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's exactly the idea here, is bringing the kingdom means for God's rule to show up where it looks like somebody else is in charge and showing that God has the power to bring his reign down to earth. Yeah. And like you said, Glenn, it's not uh, bring your kingdom into a vacuum or mm. bring your kingdom into this empty field where nothing's happening. Right. Like there's always somebody else who's already there who claims to be ruling. Some, sometimes it's Pharaoh, sometimes it's Caesar, sometimes it's Satan or the Dark Lord himself, kind of the, the prince of this present evil age. So for any exodus to happen, God has to not only bring, bring his kingdom and come down, but he has to take on whatever powers are presently in charge of things. So in the first exodus, there's Yahweh, Israel's father, brings his rule to earth. He sets his people free. And Pharaoh learns <laughs> very, hmm. very uh, significantly who, who Yahweh yes, is. Yes, he does. And, uh, you know, Yahweh overpowers the leaders of Egypt, but it's also a story about Yahweh overpowering the gods of Egypt. So, so the exodus happens, and Moses and the Israelites go ahead and sing this song to the Lord. Yahweh is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh reigns forever and ever. So yeah, that that is a statement about what Exodus looks like in the original Exodus story. And now we come to this point in the story and there's actually an interesting uh, interjection here, another example of what the new Exodus is going to look like when Jesus defeats uh, sin and death. And so right after, this is, this is crucial, right after he, he shares his prayer with them, there's an incident that takes place where Jesus drives out a demon from a man who is mute. And you remember when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed, but some of the the religious leader said it was by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. And so Jesus mm. says, hold on, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fail. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? But if I drive out demons, and here's a crucial little phrase, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. This is not a throwaway phrase because that exact same phrase is used one other time in the scriptures 
and it happens during the first Exodus story. So Moses, you remember, comes to Pharaoh and he starts showing God's, you know, mighty signs. But uh, the the Pharaoh's magicians, they can match them sign for sign only to a point. And then, you know, Moses turns the dust into gnats and the magicians try to repeat that one, but they can't. And so, you know, they turn to Pharaoh and they say, game's up. This is the finger of God. And so the finger of God is used in these two incidences, Moses bringing the kingdom of God to Egypt and the finger of God, Jesus now bringing the kingdom, driving out demons and uh, rescuing God's people. Wow. That's, that is fascinating. And again, just the value of reading a passage like the Lord's Prayer, reading the passages that come just before it, Jesus goes up on the mountain and is talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. The passage that immediately comes after it, you know, the finger of God is coming, the power of God is coming to earth. And they're both exodus passages. So again, we just can't emphasize enough how important reading in context will help you find the big threads that tie the story together so many times and how important that is. So. Of course, there's more that could be said about all of this. I mean, we kind of picked passages that that highlight this, but there's even more that identify the Lord's Prayer as a new Exodus prayer. But hopefully, even with this brief look, the point is becoming clear. The time of Jesus is the time of the new Exodus. The prayer of Jesus is for precisely that same thing, and it fits with the rest of the story. He's inviting his disciples into this kind of prayer life into this particular understanding of what Jesus is doing. He's inviting them to take up their own places within this freedom movement that he is leading. He's telling them to pray this audacious prayer, right, these imperatives, and spur God onto the greatest, deepest, most transformative liberation action ever attempted, the defeat of God's big enemies the enemies of his creation, the enemies of the life he brings, which are sin and death, which have been wreaking havoc throughout God's world through the ages. So this is not just about defeating another earthly enemy. This is about the bigger, deeper battle that Jesus is actually all about. So I don't know about you, but to me, this prayer sounds like anything but boring and just makes me think the way we so often use this in church Um, needs to be reanimated, reinvigorated Mm. with this original meaning that we Mm. get from the context of the Lord's Prayer actually in the Bible. And we're only halfway through it. We haven't even talked about bread and forgiveness yet. I mean, there's more to come that will also be kind of confirming this new Exodus reading. So the church father Tertullian once said that the Lord's Prayer is truly the summary of the whole gospel. Everything that Jesus is about is at stake in this prayer. This is why the early church said only those who are committed disciples are even allowed to pray this prayer. This is why the early church placed the New Exodus prayer right next to their celebration of the New Exodus meal, the new Passover. All of it brings us right to the heart of God's purpose, to come down and save us, to show the world who he really is, to make his name holy to bring his kingdom. Jesus is asking his disciples, are you bold enough to pray for this? 
So when we pray this prayer and place it in its context in Luke's gospel, when we get the understanding right and we get the wording right, I think it changes like everything about this prayer. This is what good Bible reading can do. If we read the Bible well, that is, we read big, we read in context, and we look for those connecting threads to the rest of the story, it really can open up a whole new kind of life for us. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. And that's really why we're doing this series uh, to just kind of give an example of how this works to show how reading big and becoming fluent in the big story can help us connect those dots and have a richer experience with scripture. So just to reiterate, today we went through the first half of the Lord's Prayer, and on our next episode, we'll do the same thing, but with the second half. And then after that, we'll circle back and explore what the Lord's Prayer means for modern day disciples for Jesus. You know, we've, we've talked about how it was a prayer embedded in the Israel story and the Exodus story, and also the immediate moment of Jesus's life. But that doesn't mean it's irrelevant for us. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, um, there's some really rich, deep meanings for us today. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more about Changemakers at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.